first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were, much, very, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Now, if you ever read a comic book, that's when the light bulb goes off next to their head. <laughs> that's a light bulb moment when they finally put it together because of the Holy Spirit delivering that message to them. Jesus talked to us about this. He said this was going to happen. He said that he was going to be taken up by sinful men and the leadership there in Israel, and, they, and he was going to be crucified, and he was going to rise again on the third day. Now, this reminds me of something else, to a colder spot right there. But in the first chapter of Luke, there's a time there where an angel meets Mary and is describing to her that she's going to have a baby, and she doesn't understand how that's even possible, because it wasn't, unless she knew a man. But this angel says to her, then Mary, said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. In verse 37 it says, and this is what the angel was saying to Mary, For with God... Nothing shall be impossible. So Jesus' life upon the earth, from the beginning, before conception even, all the way through his life, was the impossible becoming possible because God was in it. And he rose again the third day. An impossibility in human terms, but not for Jesus Christ, who was God himself. And they remembered his words and returned from the sepulcher and told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and other women that were with them, and which told these things unto the disciples, unto the apostles. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Then arose Peter and ran into the sepulcher, and stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves, and departed wondering in himself at that which was come to pass. The impossible had happened. And it took some time for them to start to even process this, but the Holy Spirit was lighting up their hearts. You heard Jesus talk about this over the last several years. Today is the day that it happened before you. And the resurrection, the, the message of the resurrection became the core of the gospel message that spread 
throughout, as the early church <clears throat> began to spread throughout all of that Mediterranean vicinity, that, that Asian area that we talk about because of the resurrection story, the res res resurrection account, and that there were up to 500 people at once that had seen the risen Christ. Those people were eyewitnesses of a man who had died upon a cross, who had been buried for three days, and they were eyewitnesses of him speaking and being among them for 40 days. The impossible became possible because of God. <clears throat> I want to go to prayer as we begin this message. And uh, Brother Cody, would you be willing to lead us in prayer here this morning? Are there particular uh, requests that you would like to include here? Let's remember Kurt's mother, who's in the hospital at the present time. Yes. Uh, Abigail Montgomery shared with me that a friend of hers is having a baby, just had a baby, and their brain has stopped growing in the child, and she's not a believer, but she has recently began going to church. So mm. one of us keep him in mm. our prayers this morning. Let's remember Abigail Montgomery's friend, who is having a baby, who is having some very difficult uh, changes in that baby's body. Let's keep them all up in prayer. Other concerns here this morning? Yes. I don't have any prayer requests, but I have a painful request. I don't mm -hmm. know if I ever speak in right or wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Please speak. Remember, see the people in Sebus's home village as things are coming back to more just a liveliness and just uh, free of the dangers that they've been suffering through and so forth. So you praise God for all that's happening there. Anyone else that something you want to include at this time? Cody, would you lead us in prayer here today? Every individual has ever lived. You would, you would come 
Thank you for uh, this morning's opportunity to pray with the neighbors as a group. <clears throat> Over the past year, they've taken over from the church. We've been praying the name for them. We've prayed the name for uh, many just get together with brothers and sisters and glorify you. Thank you, Jesus, for springtime, for seeing things come alive and seeing the creation come alive and just another testimony that you do uh, continue to create and continue to do impossible things. morning, we do want to pray for a church mother in the hospital. We pray that you with her and help her with uh, every specific need that is there. Uh, just pray that uh, you be with each one of them. <clears throat> we do pray for this baby that we heard about. It um, sounds like his brain is not growing to what it should. Pray for the baby and for the mother. Uh, Jesus, you know that once again, you can do impossible things. And so we want to pray your, your blessing and your presence. Would you be poured out like wine? Hallelujah. He is risen. He's alive. And so we too can live. And we can have hope of life not only in this life. But of rising again with him one day. The books are many that have been written 
to prove the resurrection of Christ. You know, the, the question comes up many times. How can you prove the resurrection? If it's really so central to the Christian faith, how do we prove it? And while it doesn't satisfy the skeptic, my answer to you this morning is the Bible says it. The Bible says it, it proves the resurrection, and it's the Word of God. It says that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and I believe it. Along with that, as a child of God, perhaps you've had a Damascus Road experience in your life. Perhaps you've had your road to Emmaus. You've had your personal experience with Christ that proves to you that He's alive today. The issue, frankly, as John MacArthur states, is not what proves the resurrection, but what the resurrection proves. What, the, what does the resurrection prove? John says the answer is it proves the full redemptive plan and purpose of God. The resurrection is the key to everything. If you remove the resurrection of Jesus Christ from Christianity, you don't have Christianity. You literally take the heart out of it. We accept that the resurrection happened by faith. The Holy Spirit has convinced our hearts to believe that the Word of God is true, and if the resurrection didn't happen, then none of this is true. There's plenty of evidence through the Bible. It really is a fundamental doctrine of our faith. It's the crux of the matter, and everything else sort of rises and falls with the resurrection. There's no other religion whose leader has died and rose again. And if their leader can't rise again, what hope can those participants have of themselves ever rising again? If you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. I don't know what it means to you to have believed in vain. But this morning, if you believe in a Jesus that didn't rise from the dead, let me be clear, you have believed in vain. And I think that's what Paul is speaking of here. Because later in this chapter, we're going to see that some of these people here at Corinth did not believe that Jesus had rose from the dead. Maybe you know some folks like this. They believe in a historical Jesus. They believe that Jesus lived, that he was a good man. But they don't believe that he rose from the dead. 
Muslims believe that Jesus was a good man. They hold him in high esteem. He's an honored man to them as I read. I read this week, the prophet Muhammad said, the dearest person to me in friendship and in love in this world and the next is Jesus, the son of Mary. But do they believe in the resurrection? Absolutely not. The Buddhists, they hold Jesus in high esteem as a wise sage, a wonderful man, a spiritual leader perhaps. But the resurrection, no. There are many people I would suggest in our country and throughout the world who perhaps may go to church and may even talk of Christianity and of ethics. They hold to a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. They don't believe in the power of a resurrected Christ. Maybe you know someone, maybe you find yourself there this morning. This wasn't just something that happened in Paul's day that they were struggling with. It happens today. We can believe that Jesus was a good man, that he really lived a Jesus of history, but not a Jesus of the resurrection. And until the Lord hope, <clears throat> opens your heart, until you experience him for yourself, you'll not believe this. There was a college that every year would invite one of the greatest minds in the country to lecture in the Theological Education Center. One year they invited Dr. Paul Tillich. Dr. Tillich spoke for two and a half hours proving that the resurrection of Jesus was false. He quoted scholar after scholar and book after book. He concluded that since there was no such thing as a historical resurrection, then the religious tradition of the church was groundless, emotional mumbo-jumbo because it was based on a relationship with a risen Jesus who in fact never rose from the dead in any literal sense. He then asked <clears throat> if there were any questions. After about 30 seconds, a man stood up in the back of the auditorium. Dr. Tillich, I got one question. He said as all eyes turned toward him. He reached into his sack lunch and pulled out an apple and began eating it. Dr. Tillich, crunch, munch. My question is a simple qu question. Crunch, crunch. Now I ain't never read them books you read. Crunch, munch. And I can't recite the scriptures in the originals Greek. Crunch, munch. And I don't know nothing about Nebuhr and Heidegger. Crunch, munch. He finished the apple. All I want to know is this. This apple that I just ate, was it bitter or was it sweet? The man dropped the core of his apple. I'm sorry. Dr. Tillich paused for a moment and answered in exemplary scholarly fashion. I cannot possibly answer that question for I haven't tasted your apple. 
The man dropped the core of his apple into his crumpled paper bag, looked up at Dr. Tillich and said calmly, neither have you tasted my Jesus. Remember, my friend, the skeptics, the scoffers of the resurrection have never tasted this Jesus. And I'm here to tell you we live in a world filled with professors and doctors and scholars and experts and scientists and so on, and they're trying to get it right, and they're trying to figure it out. They're trying to understand, and they're checking, and they're fact-checking, and they're digging into science as best their unbelieving minds know how. Ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Because they've never tasted Jesus. But for you this morning, Psalms 34.8 invites you, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And this morning, I invite you, in the Spirit of God, I believe invites you and I pray that it invites you and convicts you and opens your heart to taste and see that the Lord is good. <clears throat> As I thought along those lines, I thought about a story in John chapter 4, no doubt you're familiar with the woman who Jesus spoke to there. He was sitting there at a well and his disciples had left him and went into town to get food. He was sitting there and he spoke with a woman. This woman was an immoral woman. This woman had had five husbands. And the man that she was living with at the time wasn't her husband. I don't know how many people you know that have been divorced five times that are very highly respected or very solid people in the community, but it, it just doesn't usually work that way. You would kind of assume that this woman was not highly regarded. She was a mixed-race woman that was looked down on by many at that time. Jesus spoke to her, and he asked her for a drink of water. And in verse 9, this woman responded to Jesus. She said, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. She was shocked that he spoke to her. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God... And who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks from this well will, thir will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. She liked the sounds of this. She said, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst or come here to draw. Jesus says, you know the story, he says, well, why don't you go get your husband and we'll talk about this. 
And she has to confess, I, I don't have a husband. And then Jesus tells her, you know, that he knows. She's had five, and, and he tells her more about her life, it, it would appear. And, and as the story goes, she goes back into the town, and, and she tells people about this, and she gets them to come out. Now, a woman like this, I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, the way I'm assuming that she was, you would think, well, who's going to listen to her, you know, come along with her out to listen to this man? But, but some, maybe it was a rough crowd that came out. Likely was, but it sounds like there were many people that came out and listened to Jesus there. And, and then in verse 39, it says, Many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. The testimony of that woman was powerful. It caused many to believe. But let's go on here. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him stay, to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. So he went and he stayed with them. And he, he shared with them for two days. And it says in verse 41, Many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed this Christ, the Savior of the world. And that's where all of us have got to get to. Testimony can be a powerful thing, but you've got to get to in your life the place where you know that he is the Christ, and it's not just because it's what your parents believe and what they told you. It's not just because your friends go to church and they say they believe, but it's because you have heard him, you have experienced him for yourself, and you know that he is the Christ, the Son of, the risen, of, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Have you tasted this Jesus this morning, and do you believe that he rose from the dead, and that that same power, he wants to work in your life today. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Continue on here in verses 3 and 4. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins. This is Paul talking to the Corinthians. He says, I told you about how Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He says, just like the scriptures said, it says in the scriptures that Christ is going to die for our sins, and he did. Brother David spoke of this last week. Reuben talked about it Friday night. We heard more about it this morning. Just like the scriptures said, and that he was buried, and that he rose the third day, according to the scriptures. Just like the scriptures said. It said it in the scriptures. I want to go over here to uh, Luke 24, and David uh, opened up with the empty tomb here as he read the beginning of this, this chapter, and then I just want to briefly pull a couple things out of the next couple chapters that David actually referred to last week. The empty tomb wasn't enough. They didn't get it yet. That light bulb had clicked, and yet they hadn't saw Jesus. They didn't know where he was. And even though they remembered his words, they weren't seeing it. And they still weren't feeling it. As we read on, two of them that same day, in verse 13, 
went to a village called Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. They talked together of all the things that had happened, and it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holding that they should not know him. And, and this morning, if you're having trouble understanding the resurrection, if you're having trouble believing in this Jesus, the best thing I can say to you is cry out to God to open your eyes that you can see. Just continue to cry out to him that he would reveal himself to you. He would allow you to see that he would give you this faith. Their eyes, they couldn't see him. They were walking with Jesus and they didn't know it. And he said to them, what are you talking about? Why are you so sad? Verse 17. And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered and said, don't you know, are you a stranger around here? He seems to infer that everybody knows about what has just happened. Jesus says, what things? And they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet, and, and, and they're, they're defeated here. They were talking as sad, now they're talking in past tense, which was a prophet, mighty indeed in word of God before all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. Past tense, but we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today's the third day since these things were done. They knew that there was something about the third day, but it was the third day. And nothing had happened, and it was getting towards evening. <clears throat> yea, and certain of our women also were, uh, made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels which said he was alive, and certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it just as the women said, but they didn't see him. Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. You know, they had the scriptures that, as Paul said, said he was going to die for our sins and said he was going to rise again, but, but they didn't understand or they didn't believe it. They weren't alone. Uh, the disciples, none of them did. And oftentimes, you and I are that way. I mean, when we read through these scriptures in the Old Testament, it can be hard to understand. Many times we need Jesus walking by our side to be able to understand the truths in his word. Unless he opened our eyes to see, we cannot understand. Except we have the Holy Spirit speak truth to us. We're not going to realize it. We must Seek the Spirit to teach us truth. So um, he says, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures and things concerning himself. There are multiple scriptures, and we heard them, beginning with David and with Reuben Friday night, and, and so many places in the scriptures. It speaks, and some of them aren't, aren't always so clear. And I'm not going to go to many this morning. I'm just going to I'm going to take us to one in in Psalm 16:10. That was read this morning as well. This is David writing in Psalms 16, verse 10. It's, he says, "For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell; neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption." And this is speaking of Jesus. If you read through that, you know, it may be hard to, to really put that with the resurrection, especially before it ever happened. It may be hard to see that. 
And it was. And so Peter explains that to us. If you want to see Peter's explanation in Acts chapter 2, we're going to get this verse explained to us. This is Peter on Pentecost, but he's talking about the resurrection. Verse 29 of Acts chapter 2, he says, Men and brethren, let me freely speak to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us to this day. We know he died. We know he's gone. We know he's still dead. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on the throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ. David saw this, and he wrote about it. It's something that I can't understand, but... David did write that in the Psalms. Peter does explain that to us, that this is what it means. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. A direct quote of Psalm 16, 10. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David's not ascended into heaven, but Christ is. I guess one, one neat note back there in Luke 24, you know, those men, after they realized that Jesus was resurrected, they turned... And they went right back in the dark to Jerusalem to find the, the disciples and tell them that Jesus was resurrected. I mean, it changed their demeanor, it changed their perspective, it changed their whole life, and, and it changed all the disciples. But they went back and they found them. And they, it says later that they were in this room and it was locked and they were talking about them and Jesus shows up there again. And, and Boom, it did, it happened on the third day, but it really, he really drug it out for him, and it really made it hard, and, and I think that that happens in our lives. Sometimes we, we know the promises of God, and we think we know how they're supposed to work, but sometimes they, they look just a little different than we thought, or they take just a little longer than we think. We don't have to be Cleopas, and we don't have to be like this miserable world around us with no hope. As we think about these words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, as he talks of the accordance with the scriptures, just like the scripture said, the truth is the picture of a dead and a risen Messiah is throughout the Old Testament. Every time there was a sacrifice of a lamb, every time such a sacrifice is noted in scripture, it speaks of a dying Messiah. But every time it talks about the Messiah's reigning and ruling and kingdom, it talks of a living Messiah. And so we see that the one who dies must come back to life. It's all over the Old Testament. And again, if the resurrection is not true, then the Bible is not true. And as Paul will say here in Corinthians, your faith is in vain. Let's continue here in Corinthians verse 5 and that he was seen of Cephas and then of the twelve 
And after that he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this day, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, and then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me, also as one born out of due time. He says here, as David alluded to in the opening, he was seen here by, by over 500 at one time. You know, if you need uh, proof of something today, you know, if there's a court case and you need to prove innocence or guilt, and you get eyewitness testimony and eyewitness accounts, it, it's not too hard to prove the case. It just takes one or two, oftentimes. And Paul's writing this, and he's writing this years later, but he says that he appeared to maybe close to 600 people. We don't know how many total, but, but well over 500 here from the description. And, and he says, yes, some of them have died, but most of them are still alive. He says, it's not just one or two. Go find somebody. Like, go talk to If you're struggling with this, if you don't believe that Christ raised from the dead, there's people out there you can talk to. They saw him. They can verify this. It actually happened, and it wasn't just one or two. It wasn't 10 or 20. It was hundreds of people. Verses 9 through 11, we'll just read over. For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some of you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Some of these people didn't believe that Christ rose from the dead. Or that... that any, anyone else was going to rise from the dead. You know, there was a lady that died in a small town. And they rushed her to the hospital. The doctor checked her out and pronounced her dead. The family went home. And the nurse was cleaning up, and she discovered that the lady was still alive. She said, oh no, what are we going to do? She went to the doctor and she said, this lady's still alive, what are we going to do? You're going to have to call her family. So the doctor got on the phone, he called the husband, he said, Mr. Smith, I've got some news about your wife. The man says, my wife, she's dead. The doctor replied, well, she's made a little improvement. <laughs> and it's... It's kind of amusing. I don't know any more to that story on whether the, what, what the status of her was, but a little improvement from death. Jesus made more than a little improvement. And yet some of these people in court said, that's not possible. The dead don't get up again. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen, verse 13. And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain and your faith is vain also. I should have just stayed home this morning. Should have slept in. There's no sense in preaching. And your faith is in vain. How important is the object of our faith? Faith is talked about today, and it's not necessarily a bad word. It's often encouraged. 
but it's the object of a person's faith that gets you in trouble, that, that, that becomes disruptive. I could, uh, this chair I sat down over here uh, before I, I spoke, when I get done, I'll probably go back and sit down on it again. And I know that chair's there and it holds me up and I believe it holds me up. But should someone go and remove that chair and I go to sit down after I'm done, is my faith going to hold me up? When the object of our faith is taken away, is our faith strong enough? Your faith is only as strong as the object of your faith. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is in vain. And as we hear so much about having faith today, having faith in yourself, and having faith in, in many different places that people will choose to put their faith. And there is an amazing determination, an amazing amount of willpower in man. But it's not ever going to be enough in this life. Faith in a risen Christ is the only faith that will last Verse 15, yea, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. He's kind of talking backwards here. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You're yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Those who have died before, who have believed, they're not going to rise either. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. If you're seeking to live your best life now, if you're seeking as Cleopas was or as Peter was believing that Jesus was going to be the conquering king, if your hope is in Him in this life only, you're going to be miserable. But Christ is risen from the dead, my friend. And because Christ is risen, let's read this another way. Or say this another day. Because Christ is risen from the dead, I preach to you today. I preach truth to you today, and it's not in vain. Because... Christ is risen from the dead. Your faith is sure and steadfast. Because Christ is risen from the dead, we are not liars. We are, we are witnesses of a glorious gospel. Because Christ is risen from the dead, your faith is real and you are no longer in your sins. Because Christ is risen from the dead. Your sins were nailed to the cross. They died with him. It was real. And the resurrection proves that. That everything that Jesus said was true. It was real. It happened and it meant, he meant what he said. And that all those who die in Christ will rise again. And so will we. We have that lively hope that we heard about earlier this morning. Paul says in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. What does it mean to know the power of his resurrection? 
What does that look like? I believe it was Paul's desire to know the power of Jesus' resurrection, but it wasn't his, you know, he wasn't interested in merely knowing the, the, the facts of the resurrection and its power. He wanted to know the power of Christ's resurrection personally in his own life. He wanted to experience the saving power and resurrection in his everyday life, the power that gives victory over sin and death. He's talking about an experiential knowing and not an intellectual knowing like we heard about on Friday night with Abraham and, and Isaac and, and that point at the climax of that scene where God says, now I know. And it wasn't that God didn't know before. But he wanted that ex experiential knowing. And so this is, to know the power of his resurrection is to, is to do more than to be able to prove it through historical literature. But to know it personally through a relationship with Christ. And that is my prayer for every one of you this morning, that you would know the power of the resurrection to the very core of your soul, that it would change your life, and that when you see it, when you realize it, when you know it, that you would turn around, and that you would walk back through that dark road, through life, to tell those that need to know, those who are in despair, that Jesus is alive. Christianity is about knowing. It's about a relationship with a risen Jesus. Again, there's no other religion whose leader has died and rose again. And if a leader can't rise from death, how can any of the participants ever hope to have life after death? <clears throat> Read verses 20 through 23 with me. Now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. He's the first to rise from the dead, and then we will. For since by man came death, by, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards they that are Christ. At his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. I believe we'll. We'll stop there for today, but I just pray that God can give you the understanding, the truth of the resurrection, that the Bible can be enough for you to believe, that His Holy Spirit could open your heart. To understand that you could have the relationship that's not based on anyone else in this world.
but that's based on you knowing this risen Savior for yourself. It's all you need to know. God bless you. We'll have a song. Good evening and welcome. <clears throat> this evening is a kind of an unusual, a special uh, time to gather together for worship. This is a, the official beginning of what we call district meeting. And there may be some of you here that don't even know what I'm saying when I say district meeting. But we actually do have a district that some churches here in Ohio and Michigan and Indiana uh, that come together for a business meeting tomorrow and to do some of the things that, like if there's issues of business within the churches that are in this set of three states. Uh, it's also a mechanism for sending business on to our general conference, and it's a social time. So it's a good time to get together with people that live in a general vicinity. So that's what district meeting is about. So we've invited Brother Brandt to uh, lead us tonight in, in, for a message, but first of all, Brother Dennis. Now these two men actually represent uh, the two congregations that are, yet, that are in Northern Ohio. So Brother Dennis will, is from Pleasant Ridge up in northern, northwestern Ohio, and also Brother Brandt is also from northwestern Ohio, uh, from West Fulton. So Brother Dennis, would you lead us in prayer, in the opening of prayer? Thank you. 
Well, good evening. It's, uh, it's great to be here. And first of all, I just want to take a moment to thank all of you for your many prayers. I found out through time that people were praying all over the country and even outside the country, and I've very, been very humbled by that. And uh, so it's been a journey. It continues to be a journey. I'm just starting for the, maybe the second time I've stood before a congregation just even open. And uh, I won't be able to, uh, Brand doesn't have to worry too much. I'll run out of breath before I take too much of his time. But uh, anyway, so it's good to be here. It's good to be a part of the district meeting again. And <clears throat> was just thinking about the book of Jer or Nehemiah, excuse me. And it recently, or be actually before, I, probably last summer, I went through that book at home and and. One of the messages toward the end of the book I called the ebb and flow of life. And what we, we know the term ebb and flow, we think of it even something like water or something when, when the water, the tides ebb out and, or, and they flow in. And you, so you have that constant ebb and flow. And we use that phrase to speak about life in general sometimes, the ebb and flow of life. And when I look at the book of Nehemiah, I see a people of God that had ebbed. They had fallen into idolatry. They had fallen into sin. They had fallen away from God. God sent them into a place of, of trouble and trial as they were taken by the Babylonians and later the Persians into captivity. And so we find Nehemiah in Persia in the palace in Shushan. And he hears about his beloved city, Jerusalem, and his heart is broken for his brethren and for the city. And so we've seen Israel and Ebb, but now we begin to see the flow through a man called Nehemiah. This man begins to pray, and he begins to fast, and he begins to weep. He doesn't know what he's going to do, but he takes it to God, the burden upon his heart. And God honored that move on the, this man of, of his, this uh, servant of his, and God opened up a door which even Nehemiah could have never seen. The king came to him and says, I'm going to give you authority to go back to your brother and rebuild the city. And I'm going to send men with you to protect you. Nehemiah didn't know what the answer was, but God did. And so the flow is coming back. And we see Nehemiah come to Jerusalem. He's a man of vision, a man of organization. He goes out and he looks at the city and he begins to call the key people together. And he said, we're going to build the walls. And in 52 days, they built the walls. There had been other attempts to build the walls in the past, but it didn't happen. The flow was coming in. And so the work continued. They, 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 they brought all this together. They brought the worship together. And there came a point when they were, were worshiping and celebrating, and the joy of Jerusalem spread out into the countryside. And this was the high point. But then things began to ebb again. Nehemiah went home. Corruption set in. Trouble set in. People turned back to sin. And things went back a little bit the way they were before. And Nehemiah comes back. And he was not happy with what he saw. And he began to correct 
some of the situations. There's one verse I found interesting in the last chapter where he says, And I contended with them and cursed them and smote certain of them and plucked off their hair and made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons and, or take their daughters unto your sons or for yourself. And I thought, wow, that sounds pretty harsh. And I'm not sure I can say how that verse fits into our life today, but I noticed in my notes that I had said, sometimes God's people need a hard jolt when their spiritual walk is ebbing. Sometimes God has to hit us pretty hard when we're in the ebb flow, of, ebb of life. Maybe it's complacency and laziness, indifference, hardened hearts. What about our relationships tonight? Our marriages, our families, our church relationships, our community relationships. Is it in an ebb or is it in a flow? Is God moving in our hearts tonight? And we've come together in a district meeting for a brotherhood district, ultimately a brotherhood at large. Are we in the ebb or are we in the flow? Will we open our hearts to God and let him flow through us that we might grow in his grace? I'm going to call on Bart to pray. I'm not sure I have enough... Uh, breath left to keep praying so to pray so brother bart well thank you brother dennis for that opening reminder of the ebb and flow of life and i think that's part of the the created world that, that god made with tidal changes and winds and, and changes of seasons and all those kinds of things that we would tend if everything was just always the same we would become very complacent but i think god designed it that uh, sometimes we have to be stressed a little bit to to remember that we are not the ones that are able to fix everything that the lord jesus is is there god is there god has created it all we need to be looking unto him so thank you dennis <clears throat> so tonight brother brant jamison from the west Fulton congregation you bringing us a message and uh, we just are so glad to to have these brothers and and for have this meeting for this opportunity so brother brant Well, greetings in Jesus' name from Northwest Ohio. That's the reason that we're here, amen? Um, I understand that, yes, it's about business, but ultimately, if the business isn't about furthering God in Christ's kingdom, the business is useless, right? Well, I'm going to complain a little bit and... Uh, I guess you're going to either listen or you're going to leave, one of the two. So you can decide whether I'm in the ebb or I'm in the flow. <laughs> As you know, we have uh, started doing foster care. And in foster care, there's a lot to complain about. <laughs> Some of you have been through this. And I'm not going to bring up new stuff that you guys don't know about that have been there. But quite frankly, there's things like social workers that seem like they can't, they can't put a straight answer to save their life for, for you. 
you send them off an email with specific questions and they just send seemingly random sentences back. It means nothing. You think, what's your job? <laughs> the bureaucracy of it all? Uh, I mean, I don't even need to talk about bureaucracy. <laughs> um, so far, the children that we've had in our home, we've had a, to catch them up on doctor visits. We've had to catch them up on uh, just getting their eyes checked, their ears checked, just the, the normal things that normal parents do. Um, and it's a lot of time. And then also we have weekly visits with the parents. And that's a lot more time. We decided to get licensed in Lucas County, which is about the agency is a, a good 50 minutes away from our house. We don't want the children to ride with a carrier because we don't want them to be, for lack of a better term, I guess, messed up more than they already are, right? So you take them 50 minutes, you set for an hour. There's a really great coffee shop, by the way, right close to the agency. So you sit there, you get your coffee, and then you go back. And it's stressful because, number one, you don't know if the parents are going to show up or not. Number two, it just really, you're handing almost like your child over to somebody else when it's not actually your child, it's actually their child. But it gets to be really sketchy as to whose child this really is. And it makes me complain. Okay? <clears throat> Mainly, I probably complain about the parents. For a plethora of reasons. As you would guess, drugs are the number one reason that children are taken into care. Not always. In fact, not all the, all but the all but one of the children that have come in through our home have been because of drugs. Um, the other child is because of a mental health issue um, with with his his uh, parents. The parents just seem to somewhat just kind of come and go at will. It, they don't really seem to care, although we know that they do. The sad thing is, is that they care more for the drug of choice than for their child. It's not that they don't love their child. It's just that they love something else more. <clears throat> and it gives me reason to complain. I don't say that because I want you guys to all think poorly of me. I just say it because that's where I find myself. All right? Foster care has made me consider things in my life that I would have never considered outside of doing foster care. I did not think that I had some 
issues that I've really had to deal with and struggle with. Like if you take a colored baby into your home, I've always said that I, there's, there's, no, there's no difference between black and white. But you tell me, why was it harder for me to attach myself to him than it was for me to attach myself to the white child that I took in before him? See, it makes me deal with some things that I didn't even know that I needed to deal with. quite frankly reminds me of this parable in Luke chapter 15. We know this parable. We'll read through it. Luke chapter 15, we'll pick it up at verse 11. Luke 15, verse 11. And Jesus said, A certain man had two sons, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? And I look at that, and do you know what I see when I read that? I see the foster parents because they have walked away from something that, well, quite frankly, I shouldn't even say that they've walked away because sadly, I don't, is this actually going to be on YouTube? Okay, that's fine. I just need to know how to mark my words. (laughs) Sadly, What often happens is these are cyclical things that happen over and over and over again. Like parents that, parents of children that come into care that have been introduced to drugs before they were teenagers from their own fathers. These are the kinds of things that we're talking about. Parents that literally when the system goes into their computer and looks up all the family of the, of the parent of the child, we're not talking about the child, we're talking about the parent of the child. When the system looks at all the, all the parent's family, in other words, grandparents, aunts, uncles, there is literally nobody in the family who is able to take the child because of past things. And I look at this and I see prodigal sons and daughters. 
verse 18, And I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of the hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servant, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again, and he was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. How many of you would do that to your son or daughter? I think all of us, even the young people here, know that if somebody runs away and you've been waiting and waiting and waiting, there would be merriment, there would be joy, there would be ecstatic excitement for one who has lost that has now come back, right? And you know, I really like to leave it there. I really like to just leave the story and move on. Because then I don't have to deal with me. But Jesus goes on. <clears throat> in verse 25, and it says, Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked, what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, thy father has killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. Now can you imagine this servant is expecting joy. The servant is saying, look, this is what's happening. And this is the response of me to the foster parents. He was angry. And he would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he, answering, said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I may make merry with my friends. But as soon as thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. And it cuts really deep. Because you see, in foster care, what happens is you pick up a baby from the hospital, a newborn.
preaching is really just uh, a way for us to deal with ourselves in an out loud way. All right. For those of you who have never stood up here, um, it's it's like going to a to a uh, um, I can't even think of the word now. The person who actually helped me out, somebody. But to the th- yeah, it's like it's like therapy. This it's uh, that's exactly what it is. All right. So you have a baby in your home for seven months, seven and a half months, and what you what you think when you first pick up that baby as a newborn at the hospital, you 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 don't have nine months for, to prepare. You basically have nine minutes to go get in your car and go get them, right? And seven and a half months later, the parents are doing well. And you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, they don't deserve her. Quite frankly, they don't deserve her. I could do a much better job of raising this young lady than they could. And I think, why even give them the opportunity? And I complain. Because why are they going to be any different than their parents were? Why are they going to be any different than the 30-some-odd years that they've lived already? Why, Lord? And I think... God, if you're really sovereign, why even try to help them? And you know who I see? The older son. I see him coming through so often in my life. And this is something else that it's, it's made me deal with. And I praise God for it, and it's painful. There's a quote by John Piper. It says this, God is sovereign over suffering, which means. It means that it's not meaningless. See, it's really easy for me to start writing things off, like saying, Parents are just going to behave themselves for nine months to a year. If everything goes well, they'll have their child back. And then you know what they're going to do? They're going to party like it's 1999 again. But yet, if God is sovereign, suffering is not meaningless. And so I have to deal with that. If God is sovereign, suffering, suffering is God, if God is sovereign over suffering, it means that it's not wrath. Have you ever thought, God, you know, why, why even let their drug tests come back positive? What, you ha- you're sovereign over everything. Why don't you just make their drug tests come back positive? 
and you kind of kind of try to deal with God and you kind of think, well, you can see that we would do a better job. Why, why are you mad at me for something? And you almost feel like if it doesn't go your way, then it's God's wrath saying, or, or God not being happy with you. Maybe not his wrath, but maybe just not happy with you. But if God is sovereign over suffering, it means that it's not his wrath, right? If God is sovereign over suffering, the suffering is ultimately not destructive. When babies leave your home, it hurts really, really hard. It hurts really bad. I'm, I'm not telling you guys something that you don't already know, whether you had foster care or whether it's just one of your own babies that grew up. And at some point, they go and live on their own, right? And it hurts. But ultimately, it's not destructive. If God is sovereign over suffering... It's also not wanton or, heed, or heedless. But if God is sovereign over suffering, it is purposeful. Do you know what I've... I don't really like it. I don't really like the suffering that I've felt in the short time that we've done foster care. but I have found purpose in it. And I'm not talking about, I mean, let's be honest. You get into foster care because you see pictures of these babies or children that literally need a mom and a dad. They need a family. They, they, have, they have nothing, right? And so you get into it for them. And God has taught me more in foster care than what I've given any of those kids. It's purposeful. And if God is sovereign over suffering, it's also measured and wise and loving. Hmm. Sometimes it doesn't feel very measured. Sometimes it feels like you're getting your heart ripped out of your, your chest. It doesn't feel very measured. It doesn't feel very wise. And it doesn't feel very loving. But yet, if I believe in a sovereign God, and I know that God is sovereign, then I know that God is measured, purposeful, wise, and loving. in everything that he brings me through. There's a song by Casting Crowns. It's called Start Right Here. And going back to Dennis and the ebb and the flow, it starts out like this. We want our coffee in the lobby we watch our worship on the screen. We have our rock star preacher who won't wake us from our dreams. 
We want our blessings in our pocket. We keep our missions overseas. But for the hurting in our cities, would we even cross the street? And I said, yeah, I'm going to cross the street. I'm going to go to Toledo, and I'm going to have foster kids in my house. And I want that to be real. And then I got there, and I said, wait, wait, wait. I kind of want to go back. But you see, once you've taken a step into something, you can't just step back out of it. I mean, I guess you could with fosters, but what does that tell anybody about you? It goes on and it says, the song says, but we want to see the hearts set free and the tyrants kneel. The walls fall down and our land be healed. But church, if we want to see a change in the world out there, it's got to start right here. It's got to start right now. Lord, I'm starting right here. Lord, I'm starting right now. And then it goes on and it says, I'm like the brother of the prodigal who turned his nose and, nose and puffed his chest. He didn't run off like his brother, but his soul was just as dead. What if the church on Sunday was still the church on Monday too? What if we came down from our towers and we walked a mile in someone's shoes? And I think it's got to start right here. And it's got to start right now. And I don't want to walk a mile in the people's shoes that I'm dealing with. But guess what? I need to. Because if I don't, I don't understand where they're coming from. And all I do is stand up here and complain about them and where they are. And it does them no good. And it does the older brother no good. Right? So I go back to my attitude, and maybe my attitude isn't as bad as what it was, at least up here. Because oftentimes there's a big disconnect between my brain and my heart. Because you see, I, I think in my brain, I think, okay, we need to actually have a relationship with these people. We actually need to interact with them. We need to put their shoes on, so to speak. We need to maybe not see them as them, but maybe as us, gathered around a child. And think, you know, if we have this relationship, maybe we can help them. And if things work out, maybe we can have a relationship past when the child is reunified with their parents, or at least a parent, right? 
And then my heart says, oh, but I don't want them to take the child because that's just not nice. And I can do a better job. You see, my heart and my head are disconnected. Let's turn back a chapter in Luke 14 for a couple verses, eight verses there. We'll pick it up at verse 7. Luke 14, verse 7. Choosing the best for ourselves rather than not the, not the best. <clears throat> and he put forth a parable to those which were bidden when he marked how they chose out the chief room, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding... Sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him came and say to thee, Give this man place. In other words, you get up, because this guy's going to sit here, and you have to move back in layman's terms, right? <clears throat> and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher, then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Then said he unto him that bade him, when thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee. For thou shalt be recompensed, at the resurrection of the just. And I think with my head, I think a relationship with these people around a child is where I need to be. And with my heart, do you know where I go? I still go to that upper room because I still say I would be better at raising their child than they would be. And then I read another parable that Jesus laid forth. And what does he say? Humble yourself or you will be humbled. Right? And he says, why invite the people who can repay? Invite the ones that can't repay. And once again, I'm pricked to my heart. And I think, hmm, why? Why, Lord? The last time I preached at a district meeting was quite a while ago. And it was, my title was abortion. The title of this one is adoption. Because ultimately, that's where this is. That's what ties this together. And it ties a heart 
to a head. And we haven't been there. I'm not, obviously there's many of you who have, who have actually gone through with the adoption process. But as I read Ephesians chapter 1, you can turn there. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll pick it up at verse 3. I look at this and I see adoption is tied into the very framework of creation. God tied it in so tightly, in fact, that it's one of the biggest aspects that, that we as Christians look at. And I'm not necessarily talking about physical adoption, all right? There's obviously been the, the springboard of foster care slash adoption, okay? And, and we see that springboard ultimately all looking toward a spiritual aspect of it. And hopefully I've made it clear between those two things. Because oftentimes, for myself anyway, the, I find the physical to be here, okay? So I find the spiritual to be here. And so when I look at my heart, that's where I really am, all right, in my spiritual walk. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, we'll read verses 3 through 6. Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted, in the beloved. There's three points in these four verses. The first one is from him, from God, is adoption. Verses four and five says, in love he predestinated us to adoption. Now, let's not get hung up on predestinated. He predestined or he destined before. When did he destine us to adoption before? What does it say? What does the verse actually say? When? Anybody? Ah, so God, the Godhead, Trinity, was setting up there and he was saying, before he ever created us, he was saying, I'm going to destine men unto this thing called adoption. That's a pretty big deal. If you have God saying, I'm looking beyond creation. I'm looking beyond the Garden of Eden. I'm looking beyond what I know man is going to do. 
He could have easily created us to be robots and to just automatically love him, right? But how much love do you get from something that has no choice but to love? And so he created us in love, destined for adoption. Number two, through him is adoption as well. And we find that in verse five. It says this, predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself or through Jesus Christ, or because of Jesus Christ. The work of Jesus Christ, when he came and he lived as a man, when he died on the cross, when he rose again, that was for our adoption. That was also predestinated, or that was also thought about by Trinity before creation. So from him is adoption, through him is adoption, and for him is adoption. And we find that in verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace. So we have Trinity sitting there thinking, and this is my mind, Trinity setting their thinking prior to creation, and they're bouncing ideas off of each other. And this is just a finite mind trying to wrap my finite self around an infinite being, right? So the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are sitting there saying, well, how should we create this man? And how should we make him? Should we make him with free will? Should we make him just so he loves us? like, how do we want this all to go down? And they said, well, we want him to love him. We want him, man, to love us because he loves us, not because we've made him to love us, right? And then they say, okay, well, how do we, when he doesn't love us, how do we make a way for him to get back in our holiness? Because once he doesn't love us, He's no longer holy, and he cannot stand before us, lest he die. So how do we make that way? How do we make that bridge? And they said, ah, we've come up with this idea of adoption, right? And they say, okay, well, how does that look? How do we implement adoption? And Jesus says, I know. It takes a cross, and it takes blood, and it takes a resurrection, And the Godhead says, so how do we make it look like or emulate one of our best qualities that we have? How do we give this a face that man can see our best quality or one of our best qualities? And I find it right there in verse 6, unto the praise of the glory of his grace. 
because ultimately that's what adoption is. It is because of his grace. And God sat there and he thought about this and he came up with this plan for you and for me prior to creation. And he said, I want this to revolve around this one thing. And this one thing is my grace because that's what I want people to see when they see me. We talk a lot about God's love. God is love. God is also truth, right? When we see love, we see it through the lens of grace, though. And when I look at this, and I think about this thing called adoption that was put in place prior to the creation of the world, the universe, when I look at this thing called adoption, do you know what I see? I see an older brother that gets irritated when other people come to the feet of being adopted. When it's the very thing that I want to do. You see, the difference is, is my head says, I want, to, uh, I want them to come to Jesus. Ultimately, this is confession time, I guess. Ultimately, this is, this is what, uh, I mean, in an ideal world, this would, be my, this would be my ideal, all right? I would say, I want people to come to Jesus because, I mean, that's what good Christians want, right? But I want them to see that I could actually raise their child better than them. And so when they come to Jesus and they get a saving relationship with Jesus, then I want them to say, well, actually, you could raise my child better than I could. So therefore, why don't you just go ahead and raise my child? If you haven't stood in the place that I'm standing, you probably are thinking that guy is off his rocker. But I'm telling you, Babies are precious. And it's really hard to think about them going back. But I also know that God is sovereign over the situation. And I also know with my head, and it's made it as far as my head, that I want the parents to meet Jesus. And I want them to have a relationship with me but I also want them to have it more than me. I want them to have a relationship with Jesus. And if I'm ever going to be a planter and a waterer of that seed into their lives, the only way that I'm going to actually be able to do that is by one way. And that's actually to have a relationship with them. And to have that relationship with them, do you know what I'm going to have to do? I'm going to have to put on their shoes and I'm going to have to walk in their, in their paths. And I'm going to have to actually interact with them. I'm going to have to actually text them. I'm going to have to, when I see them at the agency and I hand my baby over to them for the hour, I'm going to actually have to, to love them. And it's slowly making its way to my heart. Because ultimately, do you know what I want? I want them to see Jesus and I want them to meet Jesus and I want them to know Jesus because ultimately this life is a vapor and it's going to be gone like this. And if they don't know Jesus and they get that baby back, do you know what's going to happen? I'm never going to see him again. 
and I'm going to stand before a father someday, and I'm going to answer, and he's going to say, why didn't you, why didn't you love them? Because I died for them too. I died so that they could be adopted into my family just like you. There's one more quote from the Bible recap that I'd give that I don't really like it, once again, (laughs) but it's been good for me. Obedience doesn't always guarantee our desired outcome. Sometimes its purpose is to teach us faithfulness to God, not to our desires. And when I look at little babies and I hold them in my arms and I say, I love you. And I try to reckon with God and say, look, God, I really love this baby. Can we just keep her or him? God says, just be obedient. And I'll take care of the rest. And you know what? I just simply have to be okay with that. I have to be okay with letting God be God and me be me. And having to understand that there's only one way that I can actually stand before God. And that is through this precious thing called adoption. And if I get to get to actually adopt one of these babies, fantastic. But ultimately... Wouldn't it be so much better if the families themselves would actually be adopted into the greater family of Jesus Christ? And I look at that and I say, I don't want to be the older brother. I want to be the dad. I want to be the dad that's looking for the others to come to him. Not comparing myself to the father, okay? Please please don't make any, any jumps here. Just take it for what it is, all right? But I want to be the dad that's constantly looking, constantly ready to water, constantly ready to plant, so that the father can actually get the increase, so that the father can actually have one more to come to adoption to sit at his table so that ultimately in the brief passing of time that I have interaction with these families, I will have eternity to sit down and actually get to know them. And when I look at the life that I find myself in on Saturday mornings right now, I have to remember that my head and my heart have to be in the same place. And that place is that we're all looking to one father who has put into the very fabric of creation this thing called adoption. And the adoption is not only for me, who's actually grown up, but my father is actually watching for the ones that haven't come 
He's watching for them from a long way off, waiting so that they can see him. And do you know how they do that? Do you know how they see him? It's people like you and me that step into their lives and see them as created beings in God's image, just like I am. And we make it to our heart and we share this great plan of adoption with them as well. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> let's, let's just all stand. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, as we've considered this great plan of adoption of yours, and we know how unworthy ultimately we really are, as we've shared some of the dark secrets Lord, you know where we are. You know where each of us are. But ultimately, you know where we're destined before the foundation of the world to be. We know that you have made the way for us, that you have made it free to us, although it cost you your life. And you knew that it would prior to ever creating us, and still you had grace enough to do that for us.